It really is good to be here this morning. And, and you know, I can't help but when we sing like we sing to think First Baptist Louisville has to be the best kept secret in North Dallas. Yes? Now, why is that? Someone is not sharing it. Yes? Oh, oh. Sorry about that. No, I, I really mean that. Those of you who are listening also uh, from, from uh, other places than here, those who are watching, we're so glad to have you here. This it really is a blessing and a wonderful, wonderful place to worship in every way. So I hope you feel that from the bottom of your heart. Last night, we launched uh, kind of a new men's ministry. A hundred plus people were here. Right? Yes? Thank you to all of those who, who led that and, and, uh, and took the initiative and got that going. We are so grateful for everything God is doing. I want to speak to you this morning. Uh, we are in the fifth Sunday of Lent. And just a couple of Sundays from Easter morning. You know next Sunday is, is Palm Sunday and then comes Easter morning. Uh, so... Um, I thought this would be a text that spoke about as directly as any text would to this particular time. Most people, if you have your Bible, just uh, turn to Mark chapter 12. And I'll speak a little bit so that'll give you a chance to, to find it. You go to the New Testament and you got Matthew, then comes Mark. If you think about the word gospel there are so many people that hear that and they think automatically that must have something to do with jesus or church it's kind of a music genre that originates in church and has to do uh, with jesus in some level and then there are people who actually go to church and among those there are some that actually listen to sermons and they know that the word gospel is a translation of the word, the Greek word, the biblical word, o angelion, means, o means good, angelion means news or message. So it means the good message or the good news. So there's something here to, to be reminded of, that the gospel is the good news that God desires to have fellowship with people and that he is willing to do anything and everything possible to make that happen. He is taking the initiative. The gospel is the message that even if it takes delivering his son to the evil of, of mankind and putting him to death, he will do that, that pain and then bring him back to make it possible for all of us to have fellowship with him. So at the same time, when, when the gospel is great news for those who accept that and who receive that and who are committing their life to, to a life that says, I want to follow this God, this Jesus Christ who gave his life for me, live in the light of his words and, and, and uh, try to imitate the life that he lived. The opposite, those who say, I don't care. This message of the gospel is not exactly great news. And we know that 
even from Jesus' own lips, right? When, when the most well-known Bible verse I think we have, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that everyone who believes shall not perish but have eternal life. Then read on. Just another sentence, and it, and it goes like this to make it just exactly what it says in this translation here. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already. So we are living in this tension. And, and, and Lent, this period, calls us to consider this. So much for that word, evangelion, or gospel. But those of us who live post the first Easter also recognize that what God promised Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior to the coming of Christ, through prophets and others, he fulfilled during that first Easter event. God took his promises and brought fulfillment. And it happened just like he said it would, that he would send his son for, as the atonement for sin. So, we like to look at things that way. After all, we're people, right? So we like it when we look at things from our perspective. It's a great hymn, and it really is. When we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? Forget not his benefits. We like the benefits. And we should. They're tremendous. They're extraordinary. But what does this look like? From God's side. Not just from our side, but from God's side. There was an enormous price to be paid to restore the relationship between God and his creation, primarily human beings, when it comes to that. There's something here that is extraordinary And we need to kind of take a look at that because that's what Jesus is talking about here on this five-fifths Sunday of Lent. Forgiveness is painful, deeply painful. I I mentioned it before. If someone steps on your toe or they push a shoe or they they spill something on you, you you say, and they ask for, I'm so sorry, can you forgive me? You say, sure. That's not really forgiveness. That just means it didn't matter all that much. I can get over that. But if someone violates you to the core of your soul, forgiveness is painful. It's difficult. It hurts. It's still the charge for you to do that. But it's painful. And that's what we see Right here in this text, as we get to it in chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves on the Temple Square shortly before the first Easter ever happened. And a group of, of priests and chief priests and scribes and some of the Jewish elders came to Jesus to confront him. And Jesus responds, by reading this parable, or by telling this parable, sorry. 
chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for, for a vine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent uh, him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is wonderful in in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but they feared the crowd because they knew, or if you translate it maybe a little bit more directly here, he understood that he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. You know, parables are stories that take well-known elements from daily life And put them together in such a way that they bring a message that cannot be understood that strongly in any other way. And that is what it's about here. When Jesus is trying to tell this story about what does this look like? What does pain look like from God's perspective, if you will? Well, the picture was pretty well known uh, right here. God had often throughout scriptures compared his people with a vineyard. They knew exactly what the context was. They, they got it immediately. It was a we- very well-known picture because it was pretty common that, that wealthy kind of a vineyard owners would have several and they would take them and they would lease them out or, or, or let someone else franchise it, if you want to use that word, so that they were the owners of it and they paid for that by giving a certain percentage back to the owner of their, um, of their crop or of their harvest. It was a well-known picture, thirdly also because the tension between the owner and the tenants was pretty well known. So nothing about this parable kind of stands out and says, what is he saying? They all got it. Like instantaneously, this was pretty clear what he was talking about. So I want us to pay attention and notice the details 
they're here. That there's something going on that is, is very clear and very strong. There's like three kind of areas, if you will, uh, that this parable fall into. It talks about who we are as human beings. It talks about who God is as the loving Father. And it talks about who Jesus Christ is as the one God sent. So the privileges are pretty clear when we look at these things. First, they were entrusted with the vineyard. That means there were new possibilities, new chances. They were not hirelings that stood on a street corner and hoped to be hired for a day's work to be paid a denarii when the evening came. They were not slaves that were just told to go work in the field. These were people who had been given the opportunity of life to really kind of experience the surplus and life itself in new measures. There was no real danger. For them. They were privileged. Things were well. All they needed to do was to take care of what they had been entrusted and work faithfully for the sake of the owner. That was it. They would get a percentage of all of their labor. And so the details are pretty clear. It's a deep expression. If you look at how Jesus almost measures it out, it becomes an expression of extraordinary love. This was not just a regular, normal kind of uh, vineyard with a stingy kind of vineyard owner. Notice how he spells it out. There was a fence around the whole vineyard as a measure of protection. There was a, a dug kind of a wine press that allowed them to get the greatest, the greatest use or the best utilization of the crop that they harvested. There was a watchtower that allowed them to stand in the outlook and see dangers way before they came close. That same watchtower was also a place of protection for them. It was, it was a place of storage for, for all their, their fruit and their, their harvest. This was designed to be the best vineyard ever. There's no mistake about this. And so look at what happened. It was a privilege for them to be the ones who were stewards or caretakers of what they had been given in this vineyard. And they received the most incredible, extraordinary circumstances. Think about this. They didn't have to plant. They didn't know it was not just given a lot of land. They didn't have to build a fence. They didn't have to dug a press. It was just handed to them. All they needed to do was to be faithful to the owner. But how did they react? 
They just didn't care. Indifference. It was egotism all the way. No one expressed any kind of gratitude for this. It was just taken as we can take this for ourselves and not care about any kind of ownership by someone else. So here we are. And that's the text. And Jesus speaks it and nobody wonders what he's talking about. There's possible, it was impossible to not get what he meant. Given all these well-known pictures that flow through this thing. God's kingdom was there. And they were placed in it. But they didn't really care. Instead of receiving what God has given them and made ready for them. Instead of expressing that kind of gratitude and joy that should come with this. They chose not to listen to God. And instead took what was his love and manipulated that for their own benefit. Now friends, that's sin. People sometimes ask, what's a good definition of sin? I'll give it to you right here. It means that you don't take God seriously. That's pretty much what it means. That you just don't take God seriously. God says, do this. And you say, I know, but I don't. Or he said, don't do this. You said, I know, but I do. It's like not taking him serious. That is the point right here. And so Jesus' point is that everything, and he calls us to repentance through this. Everything has a price when it comes to sin. There's a point at which we are called to an account for what has been given to us. What has been entrusted to us. You know, we, we are good these days to come up with new ideas and, and be creative. And all of that is, is good and well. And, and how do we do this? And how do we do this? And how can we come up with new things to say about God? But the gospel... And, and all the letters for that matter, the whole New Testament, it's not all that concerned about coming up with new things that they didn't know about God as much as it's eager to remind them, remind them of the, remind them of the things that they could never forget or should never forget about God. That He will always have the last word. None of us will ultimately Escape his judgment. Are we seeing this? I know it's difficult, but are we seeing this? When Jesus describes the gospel as seen from God's perspective, it becomes a point where we will be keenly aware of his personal, even emotional, if you will, engagement with us. He cares for us. 
The God we hear about in Scripture, the God that Jesus calls his Father, the God who offers himself to us as becoming our friend. That God is not a cold, motionless or emotionless kind of unpersonal higher power whose only task was to set the world in motion and keep the wheels going. To the contrary, friends. If you read through the scripture, if you pay attention to the language and the words of of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will see that that God that he calls Father, that God that is the creator of all that exists, he is full of anticipation, full of longing, full of eagerness to see our response to all the goodness that he has given us. That's the call here. He is excited that he can give us all this. And with that comes the other side of being wounded, even hurt, when we respond by egotism. That's what they did right here when, when they mocked him with sheer indifference toward all he had done for them. When they didn't heed his address to them. It's as if they, they didn't understand, which is exactly what the parable expresses, that he was the owner and they were the tenants. But I want you to, to, to notice one thing more, and, and I know we, we don't like to talk about this, but it's hard to be faithful to a reading of Scripture and certainly to this text without noticing this also. In this parable, that is just part of it, that God can be wrathful, not some kind of uh, outburst of, of irrational anger or, or anything, uh, any kind of emotional outburst like that, but a side of his righteousness is his wrath. And, and we don't talk much about that. But in Jesus' description of God, this is part of it. It is how he describes his righteousness. In fact, let me put it this way. It is impossible to understand the love of God until we have also understood the wrath of God. The letter of Romans would put it, uh, would put it like this, and let me just read it again to get the wording right according to our translation here. God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. Did we get that? God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. But because of our hardened and unrepentant hearts, we are storing up wrath. Well, let me say another thing about Jesus' description here. Before we get too eager to kind of dwell on the wrath of God, we need to kind of understand the framework in which Jesus speaks about this here and everywhere, really. God's wrath functions in the framework of his salvation and his patience. 
It's impossible to kind of separate all these things. I hope you're hearing this in in the best of of ways right here. Uh, It is almost impossible to exaggerate the expression that Jesus has given here on Paul's, uh, on on, on God's faithfulness. I mean, God's patience. We are so accustomed to that word patient that it had lost all kinds of meaning. Maybe a better word here is long, long suffering. Yes? We're hearing this? That what does he say? Go through the pattern. He sends one. And they beat him up and throw him out. He sends another one. Gets the same treatment. He sends a third one. They kill him. He sends a whole lot of other people. Till he finally had one left. Imagine this. You're thinking you have patience? Look at this. This is, it goes to no end. There's like no stop to God's patience. It seems to break every limit in so many ways. So finally, he sends his son. Thinking that they will not kill him. God's patience, friends, stretches. And Jesus belabors it here. Beyond what we can imagine. Inexplicably far. Painfully far, if you will. Those the prophets. The messengers. The priests. The preachers. The songwriters. The artists. Everyone showing the beauty of God. Showing who he is. And yet, they rejected. Some of you remember, those of you who don't know the story, that's, that's fair enough. Luke chapter 16, uh, Jesus tells another parable about a rich man and a poor man called Lazarus. And in that parable, the rich man has everything that he can envision, everything he can imagine, uh, but he doesn't listen to God. It doesn't share what he's supposed to share. And so he winds up in Sheol, uh, the kingdom of death, if you will. And, and from there, he cries out to God for to send someone to his brothers that they may know. And the response come back to him and says, if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen to someone. Who comes back from the death. Friends, the message of this season right here before Easter is that God did send his son to us. He did send him and he was killed. Humans conspired to do that. And maybe before we get too quick on, on thinking about history as if we're not part of it, maybe we should be reminded of an old hymn. Some of you are just as old as I am and you'll know about it, right? It's called, Were You There When They Crucified the Lord? Oh, it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they hung him on the cross? Were you there? It causes me to tremble. 
But here's the point, friends. He came back from the death. The gospel tells us that God was willing to give it all, including his son. But then he broke that power of death and made it possible for us to look at the resurrected one and not do like what was foreseen about these brothers, but to come to faith because we have seen him. So just like God's love cannot be understood until you have also understood God's wrath. So God's patience is not truly making any sense until we also understand his judgment. Notice what's going on here. The tenants thought they could steal their way to the inheritance. But without considering that it was their relationship to the owner that had given them everything they ever had, they concluded without remembering that the one who gives is also the one who takes away. The patience of the owner of the vineyard can only be understood in light also of the judgment that can be there. Please hear this. The gospel that Jesus preached through this parable is a story about a God who is willing to give his all to restore relationship with you. Are we getting this, friends? This is the gospel as we see it and as Jesus understood that. It is it's so clear. And what strikes me here is this. When they confronted Jesus and he confronted them back or just asked them questions back, they understood or they knew in their hearts. Another way of translating that. What did they know? What is there to know, really? They understood that it's the privilege of God's love, really, that cannot be separated from the reality of his wrath. That's the reason we recognize how great a love is this. And it's also they understood that the patience of God is like the incredible reality in light of the judgment that is there. So they understood. I'm asking you and I'm asking you who may be listening from another place also. Have you understood? Do you know in your heart that this is so? That's what happens here when Jesus reveals God's pain in this forgiveness. Let me say one last thing and and I'll end with this. Notice a quote here from the Old Testament. The cornerstone that the builders rejected. That's that's the point. The, the, The issue here in this parable is that that sometimes 
We get to build our lives, and it's up to us what we put there as the cornerstone. Some people will take that, that stone that should have been the cornerstone and make it just one of the stones in the building of their lives. When you build your lives, what is the cornerstone? The cornerstone is that stone that makes all the difference for the stability of the building. Think of that. To take what should have been the cornerstone and put it someplace else as one of the stones, it doesn't make any difference. And then you take something else to put in that place because you need a cornerstone. Everybody has one. Let us not do what is said here. The stone that the builders rejected. There is but one way to know God, and it is through Jesus Christ. When your life makes him the cornerstone, not in words, but in reality, then you'll see everything else. From your side, of course, you have the choice. God has already declared what it takes to make Jesus the cornerstone. Friends, it's Lent. We're getting ready to receive the resurrected Lord. Yes? What could be more important at this time? Can we stand and pray together? There'll be some here who can't say in their heart, heart of hearts, Jesus is the cornerstone of my life. If that's the case, we'd love to talk to you, pray with you, explain to you what you may have of questions, whatever that is, and deal with the things that you're going through. Some of you say, I need to be part of a church. We're here. We want to be see you as part of the church. Whatever God is speaking to you, if you want to rededicate your life, spend this time. Say, I heard it. I want to get ready for Easter. Father, speak right now. Your word, even as we sing this song, call someone forward to pray. May someone grab someone's hand and say, please pray with me. Save us from being like the tenants who devious down didn't care much about the owner.